0: Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 123, A Look Outside the Walls. During the previous 122 episodes of this podcast, we generally focused on Welsh history, obviously as it's a Welsh history podcast. Uh, We've had to talk about English politics and Roman influences, as well as Roman culture and the derivatives that came after because, of course, those affected whales. We don't focus on major world events too often as they usually don't affect our history directly or if they do, they can be very short and very quickly dealt with. Or at least relatively so, anyway. So with that in mind, we generally, over the course of these larger events, focus in on the Welsh context such as things like the Black Plague. Vikings, maybe a general comment or three about the rise of Christianity. Those are the kind of things, things like the Crusades. We, we do talk about these larger events, but we do try and avoid getting into too many specifics because I think that actually becomes a bit of a problem because then the podcast starts to veer off into all sorts of weird ways. And so for that reason alone, I try and stick away from that kind of stuff. But I think it is important for you to have larger context on occasion. Thus, I will clarify certain things to try and give some informational explanations. And this week is kind of one of those situations. I think it's important for us to see this because, of course, the other problem is is as we go on in this series, this kind of thing will probably happen more and more as various events globalize outside of Wales while the Welsh are then merged into a larger British empire, it becomes harder and harder to avoid the fact of this such as the influence of the Welsh on say the founding of the United States or the influence of the Welsh in the piracy of the Caribbean and the areas like that the slave trade all of these things that maybe don't happen in Wales but have a very large influence by Welsh named people or Welsh ancestry so thus you need to be respectful of those kind of things you need to cover those kind of things and as well at the end of the day larger events do have a knock-on effect if you think about say the subject of world war one well of course wales was affected by world war one of course welsh troops fought in the war the welsh population suffered under the deprivation of, of resources due to submarine attacks and various things like that it wasn't directly on the land and so it's covered a little differently obviously than than say you would if it was a war between the English and the Welsh or you know something political where we're talking about the foundation of say the National Assembly or something along those lines where it is more direct to our story of Wales those things often are where I try and stay focused but I think from a macro standpoint it is important to understand some of these things and i think as we go along throughout the histories we'll continue to do that when we talk about the Tudors, we're going to talk about them from a welsh perspective but there will definitely be more of a, a perspective based in england than say in cardiff or in carnarvon or somewhere like that i mean you're going to talk about where things are happening where the action is but the influence of those people And their ancestry matter to us from a perspective of Welsh history so with all that in mind and with a very long preamble here's kind of where we're going from a larger perspective from a as a a boss of mine likes to say from a 30,000 foot level one of the biggest things that affects Owen Glyndor's war in Wales is the influence of France and to a lesser extent Scotland and why is that why are they so critical to the success of the war, at least in the early stages, and in some respects, the failure of the war in other respects. These are things that we need to understand because the context will matter to why things are happening the way they're happening, specifically in 1404, which is kind of where this story is at the moment. You need to fully understand, well, when I say fully, from a perspective, you need to understand how dramatic the influence of the french are to this story and why are they there what is driving this forward we've talked a little bit about some of the competing interests in france but we haven't talked about how we got there we've talked a little bit about the hundred years war but we haven't really talked about the the reasons why this is now ground zero for that war at the moment and how this all came about so we have to take all this in context So, let's talk a little bit about the origins of the 100 Years War. And we generally have only talked about this war in a series of incidents, you know, that have something to do with the war, but generally don't tell you much about them. As I said, we've kind of avoided it in... But today we need to spend some time to understand how this war ended the English occupation of France, and why it created such a problem for the English and such a boon to Glyndor and his allies during this period. It will be important for the next 100 years, <laughs> 100 years war, uh, because of course, Henry Tudor's influence on English history only comes about because of the fiasco that was the end of the 100 years war and the rise of the War of the Roses. Without that, very likely, the Tudors would never have reached the heights that they do, and would never be a significant factor in, you know, the history of, of England and Wales, for that matter. So in the early 14th century, as Edward I and his son and grandson were setting on what turned out to be a less chaotic period in English history, by comparison at least to the previous century, it would, in fact, be the most stable. The English government would probably be at in all honesty, until the Tudor period, because of course we have the rises of various people who overthrow governments. We have, you know, obviously we've just seen Henry IV overthrow Richard II. Uh, We've had kings who were not very good. We'll have more of that. Uh, We'll have kings who basically are so incompetent they can't keep their throne. We have other kings that have a moment of stability and then the next one comes along and they can't, inherit without more trouble. And that'll go along right until Richard III. And then we'll have our first moment of stability for quite some time after that. So realistically, the other thing, of course, you're having in the midst of all this is kings are losing their thrones, coming back to their thrones in the middle of what amounts to a civil war between various forces within the Plantagenet ancestry. And all of this kind of reflects at this moment, In France, this instability of monarchs started at the beginning of the 14th century with the death of the king in 1328. Charles IV died without a male heir, either a son or a brother. In France, as was the case in most of Europe at the time, monarchies were typically only passed down through the male heir. In France, more specifically, feminine lines with male descendants did not qualify either. This becomes important in the case of the new king, who was to be Philip, Count of Valois. Philip himself was only a cousin, but a direct male cousin. And, in fact, Charles had had a nephew, Edward, who would have been perfectly eligible if not for the fact that he was not of a male line. Isabella of France, sister of Charles, had claimed the throne for her son, but... French nobility rejected it along the lines mentioned previously. She had no right to the throne, so her son could not inherit a right that did not exist. That would have been the end of the discussion right there. No one would have really argued further about it, or so it would have been the case normally. What makes this case slightly more complicated is that Isabella had been married to Edward II of England, and Edward III was her son. Now you have a headstrong mother, someone who has become important and a large political figure in England during a period where both Regency councils and the accession of her son to the throne after after Isabel was able to depose her own husband. As we know from this podcast, Edward had met a rather sticky end thanks to Isabel and her lover, Roger Mortimer. While cooler heads prevailed, Philip would eventually ascend to the throne. Philip IV ruled in relative peace at least for a short time, but in 1337, just nine years later, he seized the Duchy of Aquitaine, a seat of English power in France, going back to the early days of the Norman conquest. It sparked Edward to try once again to claim the French throne and to go to war rather than do homage to the French king. For ten years, the English fought the French, winning and losing battles and territory, including the port of Calais, which they ended up losing. A fairly significant one, of course, because it sits directly across from Dover and is the closest point between France and England. Then, the Black Death stopped the war in its tracks for nearly five years, as, again, we've covered a little bit. And while this happened, in the meantime... It is estimated that almost 50% of the French population died of the plague, while anywhere from 20 to 33% of the English had died. So you can see why they would have stopped a war in the middle of that going on. Edward and his son, the Black Prince, carried out the war and reached the highest levels of success for England on the brink of possibly winning this war. They had even captured the French king, John II, at Poitiers, but the French crown appeared to be at its weakest, and the English appeared to be triumphant. Instead of pressing ahead with their claims and deposing John and his heirs, the English instead signed a treaty which gave them more power in France and more territory, importantly. Again, Edward renounced his claim against the French throne, and again the French survived another crisis. The Peace Treaty of 1360 lasted almost a decade. With a new French king on the throne, Charles V, disputes over various duchies and kingdoms led to another round of open warfare, as Edward again tried to regain territory. The war was mostly a disaster, and the illness that the Black Prince acquired while on campaign meant that he had to return to England in 1371, a very sick individual. Unfortunately for the monarchy in England, he died five years later, one year before his father, basically leaving England in a bit of a sticky situation. Again, as we've covered previously, that left England in the hands of a 10-year-old Richard II. And as we've pretty much covered Richard's life as much as it really needs to be covered for the sake of this podcast, we're going to step away from that and go back to France, because the key to all this was that in 1380, Charles V died. Charles V had been a very strong king, was able to recover a lot of what the French had lost during the wars earlier in the 14th century, and had been able to force the English to sign peace treaties. However, after his death, Charles VI ascended to the throne and during the early part of his reign was able to gain a peace treaty between the English that was supposed to last for about 28 years. Uh, As part of that pact, he actually married his daughter Isabella to Richard II in an attempt to try and unify the two kingdoms or at least put a stop to basically what was the 100 Years' War. Uh, As we know, that didn't really work out for anybody, but that was at least part of the process. After Charles VI assumed the throne, unfortunately for France, he was a much more unstable king, and an unstable king who lived a long life. He had mental illnesses which caused him to be unable to govern for periods of time. In some periods, he would have... at factormeals.com slash welsh history pod 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of
1: Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation.
0: seemed like dementia. He was unable to remember people or even know that he himself was king. He grew paranoid and fearful of those around him and did not recognize them, including his own wife. These bouts would go on throughout his life, so he would go through periods of lucidity and then completely lose it for a while. This is something that we'll be talking in more depth about later as another... Sixth, Henry the Sixth goes through exactly the same process in the middle of the War of the Roses, which leads to the instability that will happen at that point for England. This has meant that lords of the court in France were much more powerful and had sometimes undue influence because of all of this problem. Most surprising aspect of this was that Charles remained king for 42 years. As I said, he had a very long reign and was a... In part, of course, because he ascended to the throne at 10. But nonetheless, the reality still is, is that he was a very durable king, if not a very gr- good king. Uh, he initially started out as Charles the Beloved, according to the French public, but soon became known by the epithet, Charles the Mad. So a little bit like George Third, if we were to think of it from the English perspective again. As well, many of his sons died young, which meant they were not able to put their own stamp on the monarchy or help Charles avoid manipulation, or even assume control of the government. In fact, it would not be until Charles, eventually the seventh, who would be born in 1403, that they would get someone who could assume the throne, who was able to actually influence the throne, and keep the king safe from the machinations of others and would actually be a key reason why the English lose the war. The war comes to an end in this period again because of Richard's own troubles at home, and a new treaty in 1389 ended direct warfare between the two sides, at least in France, until 1415. As we know, this did not mean that the war fully ended. More often than not, it just turned into proxy wars, the English and French fighting various allies of the other side. In the case of England, of course, in the 1390s and the beginning of the 1400s, they would end up fighting wars in Scotland who were a French ally. They would fight uh, various people in Ireland who were supported by the French and, of course, would fight the Welsh, who again were supported by the French. So all of this is still going on to some degree. All of this is still happening as far as the English are concerned in concert to the 100 Years War which I guess is why it's the 100 Years War because the name is kind of a misnomer because the war happens over 119 years specifically and it doesn't happen all the time there isn't constant warfare between France and England during that entire period there are moments of peace there just isn't a final treaty that ends the war once and for all and the reality of it is the large driving force of the war is the fact that the French want to take back the territory that the English have or control it or at least force the English to do homage as more or less duke of the region they're controlling and not as a proper king on the same level as the king of france they of course england wants to turn this into the kingdom of france and england which if i'm the english that wouldn't have turned out i think that great for them keep in mind at this point in time the english monarchs are speaking french not english the entire administrative system is writing in latin and likely speaking in french There isn't a lot of connections with England in that respect, even after being effectively in the country for 400 years. There still is this pull back to France, thus the reason why they're trying so hard to keep parts of it. And because of all of this, this creates an opportunity for people like Glendor. And it's in these circumstances that the Welsh have an opportunity. Because the French themselves have been in a civil war amongst various kings, relatives. They have, this had remained a part of the whole One Hundred Years' War, and especially since 1480. The long reign of Charles likely made things worse, as various sides could use him like a prop to advocate for their specific ideals, not unlike what would happen in the English War of the Roses 50 years later, as we mentioned. It would take Charles VII, the son of Charles VI, born in 1403, to finally get things under control when he took power in 1422, many, many years after Glyndor had passed away and the war between Wales and England had come to an end. And this era was a point where, or at least in 1422, when the French situation was its most dire, when the English had almost won and he was able to force everything back. This was a period in which England controlled Paris where effectively the court of French control was completely controlled by England and the Dauphin at the time or Charles VII later on basically fought from a different location and it took the combination of him and of course famously uh, Jean of Arc to effectively put an end to the English dominance in the war and more or less if not completely ending the war at this point all but doing that and by the end of this century, the English will have no territory on French soil. So you have all of this going on. And in the midst of all this, at this time of great importance for the French, at a time of relative peace, one would say, uh, you have guys like Owen Glendower who are rising up, who would be very important to them. And in the French court, as I mentioned last time, there are people different sides to this war, part of the reason why the English are making such headway is because they have allies within the court of France who are helping them in this fight. They have liege lords in various areas like Aquitaine and sometimes in Normandy and sometimes in Breton and other places within France that owe a loyalty to the king and thus will help him during the war. It starts to go away later, but at this point, these things are still pulling both sides in France in, like I said, what amounts to more like a civil war than like an actual war between fixed countries because there's such chaos amongst the Orleanists and the Burgundians. And at this point, you have the northern French lords basically following, you know, the idea of French independence and following the Dauphin and trying to avoid this problem and trying to figure a way out of the issue of having such dominant control by the English. So as we're looking at this from a historical perspective, you have to keep in mind that you have major things going on outside of Wales, which are then influencing what's going on inside of Wales. Because as mentioned several times now, You have a society which is being funded, and a rebellion that is being funded by the French and is being soldiered eventually as well by the French. At the height of it, it will be the French that will help motivate the Welsh in some of their biggest battles, open field battles, specifically against the English. And had everybody held their nerve, who knows what would have happened? so you have a lot of that going on as we're going through this process and we next week we'll get more into what's going on back in wales but i I, I did think that we needed some context and we needed to understand kind of how we got here why to the french specifically one party of the french uh wales becomes a point of contention and it's at the same time that the burgundians are in the ascendancy and they are able to influence what is going on in court and influence specifically Charles VI to get behind this ideal of taking basically what amounts to a a secondary state or a newborn state and trying to help it gain its independence and add to the collection of allies and loyal kingdoms that will help the French deal with the English, keep them cornered, keep them effectively unable to resist the French demands. And how different would have this been had the Welsh succeeded? And you have what amounts to two independent kingdoms on either side of England who are allied with the, you know, one of the biggest nations in Europe. Would that have made a difference later on in other wars, like the Seven Years' War, and which is some people consider one of the first world wars between these two sides we you know it's impossible to say that's a guessing game obviously and and we'll talk somewhat about speculation about what would have happened had owen actually continued to hold his independence for wales and be owen the fourth whether that would have actually achieved anything after his death that's the kind of stuff we have to talk about at some point but for now This is kind of where we're at. This is kind of the outside the wall perspective of why we have such influence and such willingness by the French to take this ideal on to fight this war and to be willing to die for this war in a little country that they really don't have a lot of reason to do if it wasn't for the fact that they were already fighting the English tooth and nail across the you know France themselves so and of course you have to wonder what sort of loyalty the french had considering they had loyal welsh soldiers who had worked with them fought with them died with them defending french ideals without necessarily getting the support in the past so all of this kind of comes back to question at this point and and how this works out and now we will see the war take on a very different aspect and a very large change from where it had been you know, a, a dispute between various English nobles effectively to being a war between two large nation states being fought in a proxy nation effectively. So, with that, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And if you have interest, I have a Patreon. patreon Patreon.com forward slash, surprisingly enough, Welsh History Podcast. And uh, thanks you to all my patrons who help fund this podcast. Without you guys, I couldn't do this. Anyway, till next time. Bye.
1: This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis, introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy.